Good evening. If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 79. That's where we're going to start off uh, with the lesson tonight, Psalm 79. This morning we talked a bit about the temple, and we talked about Paul's vision of Jews and Gentiles not only welcomed to the temple together, but in essence becoming a new temple. United together, they are both part of that temple, and how wild that idea was for, for a Jew to talk about. If you look at the history of Israel with the temple, that's not the way things had, had been uh, in the book of Ezra. When they were trying to, to rebuild the temple after it was destroyed by Babylon, when Gentiles offered to help, they were rebuffed and told, no, this isn't, this isn't your building. Um, why do you think that is? Well, one of the reasons they're rebuilding the temple is because Gentiles came there, and it wasn't a pretty sight. Uh, Ordinarily, if Gentiles came to the temple, something terrible was happening. Nebuchadnezzar coming to the temple, Babylon coming to the temple, was a devastating time in the history of Israel. Um, later on, when Antiochus Epiphanes IV, when he comes to the temple, this is, this is in the time period between our Old and New Testaments, he desecrates the temple and basically turns it into a temple to Zeus. Bad, horrible things are taking place in Israel at that time. When Rome comes to the temple, big, bad problems are on the horizon. So, so, so the temple is something that, yes, for its sacredness and its purity, you keep the Gentiles away. Also for its protection, you keep the Gentiles away. I think there's legitimate fear about what happens when you bring Gentiles to this holy place. Um, Psalm 79 is one of those psalms that that I think goes into uh, detail about perhaps what Israelites are thinking, what the common man thinks when you talk about Gentiles and the temple together. So I'm going to read through this psalm, and uh, hopefully it'll, it'll help uh, lay the foundation of some of the sentiments that, that you see growing up in Israel. Um, psalm 79 and verse 1 says, O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. Now again, that word nations in Hebrew, it's the same word as Gentiles. So whenever you're, you're reading, I'm just about whenever you're reading, uh, there may be a few exceptions, but for the most part, this is going to be the word uh, goyim, which is going to be the word for Gentiles or nations. And so what it's saying is all those people who aren't Jews, they have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. So among your people in your temple and in your chosen city, the Gentiles come and they have defiled, desecrated, and destroyed it. Verse 2, they have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens and the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the field. Meaning they killed a lot of your people and they left their bodies uh, there to rot. And the birds came and the beasts came. And that's what they've done to your people. That's what happens when Gentiles come in here. Verse 3. They have poured out their blood like water around Jerusalem that there is no one to bury them. So they have poured out the blood of God's holy and sacred people. And there's no one there to bury or to care for the bodies. Verse 4. We have become a reproach. To our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the Gentiles or upon the nations who do not know you, and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and have laid waste to his habitation. It's like, God, how long are you going to sit there and watch things like this happen? 
Gentiles have desecrated and destroyed your holy place and they've killed your people. Get up and do something about it. Go destroy those nations. Go destroy the Gentiles. How We can't do it on our own. They're, they are bigger. They are stronger. They have a more advanced military and greater numbers. But we have you. But as long as you sit on the sideline, they're going to keep being able to come in and to destroy us. You can imagine how that type of attitude could really fester and turn into a hatred towards the Gentiles, towards the nations around them. Verse 8 he begins to ask God, to petition God to do what's necessary for you to be on our side again. He says in verse 8, Do not remember the iniquities of our fathers against us or our forefathers. Don't look back at the sins of our fathers and continue to hold those things against us. But rather, verse 8, let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name and deliver us. And forgive our sins for your name's sake. So what he begins to say is, look, don't let the sins of our forefathers continue to negatively impact us. Now, sometimes it's helpful to remember that it's not only the sins of your forefathers, which is why you're in the situation that you're in, but that, that's what his prayer is right now. And when you're, when you're reading the Psalms, you have to remember, you are reading honest prayers from the hearts of people who worship God. And sometimes uh, the Psalms aren't always the best place to get your theology from, uh, your understanding of God. Because the, the, the way the Psalms are written, it's not always intended to teach truth. Sometimes it's intended to portray truth, uh, true feelings, true emotions, a true situation that someone is in. Sometimes you'll see the psalmist write some horrible things about other people and about their enemies. And, and I don't think you're supposed to read that and say, oh, okay, so I'm supposed to think horrible things about these people or, or want to do horrible things. No, but you are supposed to recognize the psalms are covering the entire array of human emotion, from the greatest feelings of delight and worship to the lowest and darkest feelings of hatred and revenge and violence. It's all there. And I think you see that right here. But what the psalmist is saying is he's not really focusing as much on our sins, but he's saying our forefathers have sinned, forgive us of that. But also, God, for your own namesake, what happens when the Gentiles come in here and they don't know who you are and they come and they destroy your temple and they kill your people? What do people then think about the God of Israel? He's not strong enough to stop anyone. He's not very powerful. He must, or he's not very loving. Maybe he, maybe he just doesn't care about them. And all of a sudden, God's reputation and God's name suffers because of the people who are being slain. And then at the end of verse 9, he does say, and deliver us and forgive our sins. And so there he does personalize it from simply the sins of the forefathers to also forgive our sins also. And so there's a number of petitions right in the middle of this psalm about what needs to happen in order for God to be on, on Israel's side again? And he's asking for forgiveness of our sins, forgiveness of our forefathers' sins, and for you, God, to remember your own name and to defend it against these Gentiles. And then for the rest of the psalm, it turns from what the Gentiles have done for us, or done to us, what we want God to do for us, to now what we want God to do to them. And so when you get to verse 10, 
Why should the nations say, where is their God? I mean, that's what the nations are saying. That's what they're scoffing. That, that phrase pops up a number of times in the Psalms. Uh, that's what the nations say. They, they mock and they laugh. You know, they're, they're walking through the temple. Hey, where's your God now? You know, I don't see him. He's not stopping me. He, there's nothing he can do about this. And all of a sudden, Israel and Yahweh are mocked by the nations. And so the psalmist says, why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight uh, vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been shed. It's like, let them know who you are by shedding their blood in response to the blood that they shed against us. Verse 11, let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power. uh, Preserve those who are doomed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So what they have done to you by destroying your city and your people and your temple, do to them sevenfold. This is a prayer of revenge and vengeance and saying, God, get them. (laughs) Destroy them seven times worse than what they did to us. Verse 13, so we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. To all generations, we will tell of your praise. And if you do that, God... We will worship you forever and ever and ever. End of psalm. Um, so what do you see in that psalm? Well, I think you see some real, true, raw human emotion. You see some true uh, hatred towards enemies. You also see what the Gentiles have done to the temple. And you see what the Gentiles have done among the Israelites and what they have done to God's people. And so when you have a history of that type of thing, when you have a history of bloodshed and a history of, of enmity and all of that, It is going to be very difficult for you to one day say, hey, let's all come to the temple and hold hands and pray with each other. Let's all worship God together. Let's all be brothers and sisters. That is a long ways away from this psalm right here. And this is the way a lot of people, I think, felt. This is the way that, this is one of the reasons why when Paul, in Acts chapter 21, when he goes to the temple, they're going to kill him because they think he brought a Gentile there. This is in their scripture, and this is in their memory, and this is a part of who they are. They don't want that happening. That's why they have a sign in the court of the Gentiles, which is saying, do not pass any further than this. Do so at your own demise. Uh, this This is a big deal. And so you have passages like this in scripture. But then you also have, and this is what I want to kind of notice throughout this lesson, you also have these glimpses and these images of God's future not looking like this, of God having a future planned for his temple where it will be a place where, yes, Jews and Gentiles, the nations and the Israelites will join hands and worship God together. They will be under the rulership of one king that they both worship in unison and that there will become a great day when when they will all pour into Jerusalem, not for war any longer, but for peace and for unity, and for the glory of the king. Let's look at a couple of passages that have that idea. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 is a famous one, uh, and it should be. It's a beautiful passage. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2, we're going to read the first, uh, the first four verses of it. But there's this picture of God reigning as king, not only among the Israelites, 
but he's king of the world, which is his rightful position. This is, this is kingdom of God theology. When Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God, this is the type of imagery that you should be thinking of, where God becomes king, not just of the Israelites, but God is king of the whole world. Uh, and so when, when Jesus says things like, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of every nation. He's saying the time has come for all to understand and to fall under the authority of the one true king. All authority has been given to me, so make disciples of every nation. So that all of the Gentiles along with the Jews will have one king together. And that king will be uh, Jesus Christ and he will hand that kingdom over to the Father. So when you get to Isaiah chapter 2... <coughs> Look at verse 2. It says, Now it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, that is Mount Zion, that the house of the Lord is the temple, and the mountain of the house of the Lord is the, is the temple mount uh, that it's on. He says, The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above all the hills, and all the nations will stream into it. It's like, of all the mountains you can imagine, this one becomes the chief the supreme, the greatest mountain above all others. And not only will Israel make their treks and their journeys to this mountain, but from all around the world, all the nations will come pouring into Jerusalem on that great day. Verse 3, And many peoples will say, not just Israel, but many peoples will say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk according to his paths. And so instead of worshiping their own gods, the God of this uh, city and the God of this nation, they have all, even the nations, have said, no, we're going to go learn from the one true God. Let's go. Let's pilgrimage. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to the temple. He says in uh, verse uh, 3, it continues, For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Sounds a little bit different than the psalm we just read, right? Instead of weapons, you don't need those anymore. The nations have come together under one God. There's no reason to fight. The weapons, we're going to turn that into farming equipment because we're not... We're no longer using them to harm people. We're using them to reap a great, a great uh, harvest. That's what God has in store. It's a picture of a wonderful and of a beautiful day of unity, of God reigning supreme over all universally, and of war no longer being a part of the human experience. Um, we look around and we can see, hopefully, parts of this happening, but we also recognize that this hasn't fully been realized, at least not entirely in this way. And so uh, I mention it probably too often. Bert mentioned it this morning in his class, the idea of the already, not yet. You're already seeing the fruits of some of this, and you're not yet fully realizing and experiencing it. Uh, and we find ourselves often living within that tension. But it's a powerful image of what God has in store and of the life that we're called to live into. I want to look at another passage now. Turn with me to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1 and read the first four verses. Micah 
Micah chapter 4. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. So if you see Jonah, you know you're getting close. Uh, Verse 1 says, And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will rise above the hills, and the peoples will stream into it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the, house, uh, the, mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. By the way, is this sounding familiar so far? This is the exact same passage that we just read. Uh, it's such an important passage that not only one prophet speaks it. Uh, it's an idea that is repeated again. Micah is going to repeat it. I'm going to keep reading it. Um, he says, And from Zion will go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Notice verse 3. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. That, that's, a, that's a little change in the wording right there. For the mighty distant nations, God is going to be the one who is their judge their king and renders their decisions for them. Um, In verse 3, it continues, they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they train for war. Each one, I love verse 4, will sit under his own vine and under his fig tree and no one will make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of the hosts has spoken. The imagery with which this ends is People sitting in peace in their fields, underneath, underneath their vines and their fig trees, their fruitful harvests. And they're not afraid of nations anymore. They're not afraid of the Gentiles coming and pouring in. But there's peace. They have oneness with God. They have oneness with man. No one's making them afraid anymore. There's no, there's no big threat looming over them. The only thing over them is the shade of their fig tree. And that's an image of peace. It's an image of your work and your fighting and your, the threats have been done away with. And people have poured into the temple. All are welcome. All are worshiping God together. Again, that's a beautiful and that's a powerful image. That's not an image that you always see when you look at the temple. It's an image that appears when you talk about what God has in store for his temple. I want to look at another one. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 56. So back to Isaiah. Uh, A really beautiful passage in Isaiah 56. We'll start in verse 3. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. You know, that, that might be the idea that, that people had had. You know, was, oh, I'm a foreigner and I want to worship this God, but I'll still be separate from his people. You know, in, in the book of Galatians, even within the church, there was a mindset that said, okay, the Gentiles, the foreigners, the nations, they're welcome. They can come into the church, but they're still going to be separate from us. They're going to sit at that table and we're going to sit at this table. Uh, that's what Peter even got caught up in. And that's Paul is, is furious about it. He says, you're, you are missing the truth of the gospel when you do this. You're not ju- again, you're not just being impolite. Uh, this isn't just uh, your, your manners need some correction. You have actually messed up what the gospel is calling us to do by not sitting and eating with them. Because you're, you're bringing about separation within the household of God, within the family of God. And so Isaiah 56 becomes a really important passage saying the foreigner 
who has committed himself to the Lord is not separate from the Lord's people, but is just as united with them as anybody else. Uh, You continue into verse 3. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses what pleases me and holds fast my covenant, to them I uh, I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial. And a name better than that of sons and daughters. And I give them an an everlasting name uh, which will not be cut off. Uh, So along with foreigners being excluded from the temple, uh, there were others also who would be excluded. One of those groups would be eunuchs. And yet here in this image, to the foreigners and to the eunuchs, God is saying welcome. And notice what he says to the eunuchs as you go through verses 4 and 5. Verse 5 says... I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial to them. They're going to be welcomed in there, and they're going to have a memorial to them, to the eunuchs. You know what? They're unable to have children, and they're unable to pass their name along to children by virtue of being a eunuch. However, God will give them a name even better than the name that would come from their sons and daughters. He says, I will give them a name even better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will never be cut off. That is a promise of divine favor and blessing on those who at one point, at one time, would have been excluded, but now are welcome in and are given the blessing of a memorial for generations. And then you look at verse 6. He goes back to the foreigners. He says, Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, who minister to him, and who love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbaths and hold fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. God is saying, even the foreigners, if they commit to me, they'll be welcome on my holy mountain. They will be welcome in my house of prayer. Notice the language with which he refers to the temple. My house is my house of prayer. Uh, He goes on in verse 7. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. And then notice the phrase. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Not just the Jews, but for all the peoples. That's what my house is intended to be. A house of prayer for everybody. Okay, so you get these glimpses and these images of a day when the temple is no longer going to be a place of exclusion or a place of separation or a place with walls and a place of division. And that's what we talked about this morning. We talked about uh, Paul and saying God is breaking down those types of walls that have kept people separate. And he is building you together into a new house for himself. Not made of brick and mortar and not made of walls, but made of Jew and Gentile and the very household and family of God. That's what God is doing through the church. And it's a glorious image. It's a mysterious image. It's an image that Paul goes on to say was not was not uh, known in earlier days, but the Spirit revealed it to the apostles and the prophets, and they are making it known. And when Paul writes, you can read his insight into the mystery to come to realize that Jew and Gentile are fellow heirs in one family. Um, but remember Isaiah 56 and verse uh, 7, that final phrase, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. 
That's the type of, of verse and, idea, and ideology that motivates, I think, a lot of Paul's teaching and a lot of Paul's understanding of, of what the role of Gentiles is in the world now. You see it in like the grand promise of God given to Abraham, uh, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see it in quite a few passages uh, throughout the Psalms and other places that talk about the Gentiles worshiping God. And then you see it in these types of passages, like we've just been reading, about even the idea of the temple itself being a place for Jew and Gentile to come together. But the temple, <clears throat> the temple often failed to be what God called the temple to be. The temple often failed to live up to the high calling of the house of God. The temple often became a cover for the sins of the people. The people would live lives of sin, but they think, hey, we have the temple, so we're holy and God still lives among us. And as long as we make our sacrifices, then God's going to be pleased with us. And they used the temple as a mask rather than the temple as a place for unity and as a place for worship and as a place for for forgiveness and for drawing near to God. I want to read a a passage from uh, Jeremiah chapter 7. So so look with me at Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1, this is a famous sermon in the book of Jeremiah. It's called Jeremiah's Temple Sermon. This is where he goes to the temple court and he preaches against the temple. And at the time that Jeremiah is preaching this lesson, um, events are unfolding that will bring about the utter destruction of the temple. The temple is going to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah is preaching the sins that are accumulating among the people that are going to bring down this house that he is standing by. So if you uh, go to Jeremiah chapter 7, I'm going to start in verse 2. This is what the Lord is telling Jeremiah to do. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. So go stand by the gate and to all the people who are coming say, Hey, this is God's word to all of you people who are walking through this gate to go worship God at this house. Verse 4. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You know, it sounds so holy. You know, I can live whatever kind of life I want because I have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Don't trust those types of words. This temple is not the building in which you put your hope. Uh, As he goes on in verse 5, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and if you truly practice justice between man and his neighbor, and if you do not oppress the alien the foreigner, and the orphan, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, and in the land I will give your uh, fathers forever and ever. So what he's saying is the temple isn't isn't going to be what keeps you in the land forever. Rather, amending your ways is what's going to do it. Treat Treat the foreigners better. Treat orphans and widows better. Take care of them. Don't oppress them, but rather be there to help them. Don't shed innocent blood and be someone who goes after other gods. Uh, You do so to your own ruin. Rather, amend your ways and treat people right. If you want this temple to last, it's going to last not based on you saying the temple of the Lord three times. It's going to last based on the way you actually treat one another. Verse 8. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal 
murder, commit adultery and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may, uh, that you may do all these other abominations? It's like, are you going to live these types of lives and then come and say, well, because the temple and because of sacrifices, we're delivered. Absolutely not. Verse 11. Has my house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? That's what it's, it's not a place of holy worship. It's actually a den of robbers now. People who are scoundrels and thieves and murderers and idol worshipers and all of that stuff. They then come here for worship This isn't a house of worship. This is a den where criminals come together and spend their time. That's what God sees when he sees you walking to the temple. That's not what you want God to see when he sees you walking to the temple. And so you you go through a lot of these passages and you realize that the hope that you have for a walk with God isn't dependent upon this building standing. If you are living a life of sinfulness and and adultery and idolatry and all that stuff, this temple might not even stand much longer. In fact, in Jeremiah's day, it was destroyed. It was destroyed again under the Romans. Like the, the, The temple isn't guaranteeing protection. The temple isn't even guaranteed protection. If your lives aren't right, then the temple won't stand. And the temple has a purpose that ultimately is fulfilled in all peoples coming together to worship God as one family. And when that purpose is not being met, then there's no reason to have this brick-and-mortar building anymore. So with some of these passages in mind, turn with me now to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 11. This is that famous scene where Jesus enters into Jerusalem and Jesus enters into the temple and he... uh, flips tables and he what we call it cleansing the temple um notice uh what happens here in this scene mark chapter 11 and verse 15 says then they came to jerusalem and entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. So he stops all of the temple proceedings. All of the buying and the selling. The people bringing their animals in for sacrifices. He stops all of it. What he does is he makes, he gives them a brief picture of what the temple looks like when everything ceases. When all the hustle and bustle and sacrifice and all of that stuff comes to its end. This is what it looks like. Um, This is not an example of Jesus getting mad and throwing tables because he lost his cool. Uh, I I, I don't like it when I hear people uh, use this passage as a way of saying, see, Jesus got mad and threw tables, so I should be able to do the same. that's, That's not what I think is happening here. I think Jesus didn't lose his cool in the heat of the moment I think this was an intentional, deliberate, and planned act where he is showing them. It's, it's a prophetic sign, a demonstration. A lot of the prophets of Israel did strange things when they wanted to teach a valuable lesson. I think Jesus is teaching a lesson here about what it's going to look like when this temple ultimately is destroyed. That's the direction this temple is going. That's the direction things are going right now. This is going to happen only by the Romans on a much grander scale. And I'm giving you a brief, small picture of what lies ahead. 
This is about the destruction of the temple. And he tells them why in verse 17. He not only does it, but then he teaches. He says, he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations? Well, we already read that verse. That's Isaiah 56, where the foreigner and the eunuch are alike welcomed into the temple. Um, that, that image is picked up f- several times throughout the New Testament, like the Ethiopian eunuch, who is a foreigner and a eunuch, uh, who's on his way back from Jerusalem, where he was go- going to worship, and on his, you know, where he no doubt experienced some of that separation. He then is reading Isaiah 53, and Philip begins to uh, teach him the word of the Lord. And I wonder if they read from 53 all the way to 56. Because when you get to 56, you get the image of the foreigner and the eunuch, who he is in every way, being welcomed forever into the presence of God. And then he says, well, I want that now. Uh, but, but as you go through, you see this imagery becomes important New Testament imagery. And Jesus right here is saying, the problem with this temple that I'm seeing is that it has a purpose stated in the scripture that it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Instead, it is a place of seclusion. It is a place where you have a court wall not allowing Gentiles in. It's not, it is no longer what God is calling it to be. And the next line in verse 17, instead of making it a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Where did that language come from? That's Jeremiah 7. He's quoting that Jeremiah's temple service, the sermon before the destruction of the temple. And Jesus, by standing in the, the shoes of Jeremiah there at the temple, using Jeremiah's own words to condemn the temple, he is, like Jeremiah, prophesying what's about to happen to this place. God wants a temple where all the nations gather for prayer. This building isn't it. This building has become something else. This building has become a robber's den. And just like it was destroyed in the days of Jeremiah, and just like I just showed you is going to happen by flipping the tables, that's the future of what this temple is going to be. If you keep reading Mark, um, he gives another prophetic demonstration of that uh, with the cursing of, of a fig tree. He's already cursed it, and then you're going to see that the fig tree becomes withered and never bears fruit again. Um, in Jeremiah 8... Right after this temple sermon, he refers to Israel as a fig tree where the leaf has withered and produces no figs. Jesus is using that imagery to talk about the temple. And then explicitly, Jesus will begin to say that the temple will be completely destroyed and there will not be one stone. You know, Mark chapter 13 and verse 2. Jesus said, do you not see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. No... No symbolic imagery there. He's just flat out saying, this is what I'm getting at. Uh, The temple's going to be completely destroyed. Why? Well, because God has something else in mind. And if this temple is not going to welcome the Gentiles, then a new temple will. And that's what Paul is picking up on when he says that the temple, the chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ, the foundation of which is the apostles and prophets, you as All the nations, the Jews and the Gentiles together, are being built up into one building, a holy temple wherein God dwells. Gentiles have been excluded, and God is saying, no longer. Uh, There has been walls and separation built, and God is tearing them down. 
God is tearing them down in one way through the Romans with the destruction of the temple, but he's also doing so through the cross of Jesus Christ. He's tearing down the barriers that have divided humanity, and he's welcoming us together into one family. Um, Even in the Old Testament, you see that that's the direction it's been heading towards. And when you get to the New Testament, when you get to Jesus here cleansing the temple, when you get to his cross, when you get to the message of Paul, when you get to his missionary journeys among the Gentiles, you're seeing what it looks like when those events are starting to come to fruition and starting to come about. That's Paul's mission to bring about that kind of unity. And that's why you see him get so frustrated when people start saying, okay, fine, but as long as they're circumcised, then we can have unity. Or they start adding these types of barriers back into what he's trying to tear down and to open up. And so throughout here, we see that God loves all his people. You see he loves Jews, he loves Gentiles, and he wants them to be united. Our call is to join into that mission of unity, uniting the world into one family again. I think it's a beautiful image, and uh, it's one that uh, if if we had more time, there's a lot more you could go into uh, also. But I think it's an important one to kind of grasp. A lot of the temple language that you see is essential for understanding the mission of God. When you get to the end of the book of Revelation, it all comes together with temple language, and you hear there was no longer any temple there but God is bringing about healing to the nations, and God himself is the temple. His very presence is the temple, and he tabernacles and dwells among men. Um, That's a day that I long for, and that's a day that that each one of us uh, will be able to celebrate as well. Uh, And if you want to be able to join in on that celebration, you have the opportunity. If there's anyone here tonight who would like to name Jesus as Lord of your life, Enter into that kingdom. Join and become part of that glorious temple. Have your sins washed away. Be made holy and white as snow. We pray that you would let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.